Welcome back to Project Odd Ocean, a story told in parts. I am your host, your reader, your storyteller, and your very best friend, Joey Ammons. I have the fourth chapter here in my hand, which I'm about to read, but first a somewhat spoilery recap. This is the section where I inform new listeners that this is a serial podcast and is best experienced chronologically. So please find episode one and begin there. Spoilers ahead. On the last episode of Project Odd Ocean, Charlotte did some internet sleuthing and determined that the boy in the photograph had indeed been reported missing by his father, a Timothy Rook Erickson. She also learned that the boy in question's mother had passed away. The masked woman in the photograph sometime before the Amber Alert was issued. Her next revelation was a disturbing one. When she called her father and asked about the boy, he became very weary and insisted that Charlotte visit a psychiatrist. And she was able to determine that this had all happened before. She was caught in the throes of some sort of cycle regarding the memory of Aleph. Having tamped down a cascade of panic attacks using her mirror ball pacifier, Charlotte deduced that her next best course of action was to actively engage in loci state. For the other piece of handwriting on the found photograph was her own, and it had simply stated to, quote, return here in loci, unquote. What could be there? Listen on, brave listeners. Listen on. My wid. What I'm drinking. Hendrix Gin. The old standby. Because Rachel won't drink anything else. She's essentially our sommelier of gins, able to suss out when her refined palate has been forced to engage with, heaven forbid, bulldog, or even, gasp, seagrams. I can hear her dry heaves now. Disclaimer. This story contains racially diverse, ethnically ambiguous, non-gender normative, queer, gay, bi, polypan, aquamarine, indigo, mauve, and almost every color imaginable in that big, beautiful box of crayons we call humanity. Why restrict yourself to just red? Right, D? Maybe the D stands for diversity. And I, Joey Ammons, a mere artist and orator will do my best to portray these characters in their most honest light. To stay true to these characters as full-on in-the-flesh human beings. Anyhow, anywho, any what's it, on with the show. This is Chapter 4 of Odd Ocean. Charlotte was still in her desk chair. The news she received only moments ago from her father echoed in her mind. The heat was a lot to contend with, but she managed loci state in far less ideal conditions. She took a deep breath as she stared into the blackness of the mirror and counted seven seconds of inhale. She held it there and counted the flickers of the sodium vapor street lamp outside, illuminating her from behind and imbuing her with a sort of halo. She let her breath out slowly, counting back from eleven now. Slowly, and so quietly that she could not tell when the breath finished exiting her lungs. She focused on the silence of the room that existed only between those breaths. She did her best to ignore the sticky film of sweat clinging to her skin. It had the distracting quality of fusing her exposed skin to the wood of the chair and was rather uncomfortable. 
She was having trouble maintaining focus. She inhaled again for seven seconds. Seven. Six. Five. The hush was interrupted by the noise of evening urban sprawl a few stories below in the ever-inching current of vehicles. The city's most distinguishing characteristic was its enduring ability to constantly assault the senses, to make its denizens painfully aware that they are never truly alone. This was not conducive to engaging Loki's state. Just as before, Charlotte would have to use the speakers. She first blotted out the city noise by placing the putty into her ears. They sat far in the canals, and yet she could still hear the drowned hum of noise. She placed her index finger over the power button of her stereo radio, the dial set to one of the upper-digit 1200 stations on the AM frequency, and pressed it down. An ocean of white noise flooded the room, pouring out forth from the oversized speakers. She closed her eyes and leaned her head back over the edge of the chair. She could feel the diaphragms of the speakers convulsing to the noise, washing away the competing city sounds. Charlotte's mind began to focus as the vibrations from the white noise compelled her hair, skin, and bones into a sort of erratic dance synchronous with the white noise. The familiar patterns of static washed over her, rising and falling in unison with her timed breaths. She slipped her feet up into the chair, tucked her knees closely to her chest, and rocked back and forth on her heels. She timed her rocking to the random crackles of static in the din of white noise. Though she did not know how it was possible, she was convinced she could anticipate the sounds before they happened. Hisses, pops, crackles, and buzzes. She had developed an extensive catalog of the different noises as part of the ritual. When she felt her mind dozing off and basic concepts fell into a wash of unintelligible noise, this was when the rest of humanity crested the first stages of sleep. But Charlotte had found a way to slip between those stages. And in the outskirts of her mind's eye, she was always aware of the self that idled. Even when she was deeply immersed in loci, solving Gordick's puzzles, she was aware of her peripheral self. It was there that Charlotte could be still for a moment. Between breaths. When all sensory information was reduced to abstractions, and there was barely a thread of connection to the real world. Her body became the girl's body and a piece of her mind became the girl's mind. The impending, weighty, doomy feeling was left on the chair inside the girl, and for an unknowable fragment of time, she was certain that was not her. She was someone else, somewhere else. Charlotte opened her eyes. She found herself in a typical wooded environment laden thick with fog. Quintilian was nearby, rolling around in a patch of dark red mud. He was nearly completely coated in the stuff. I caught you, Charlotte said, pointing and smirking at him. The horse huffed and turned his head to face her. I don't glean enjoyment from it, he said defensively. It's so I don't get bitten. By what? Um, the bugs? They're freaking huge! There aren't any here, she pointed out. Don't be so sure. I saw one right before you showed up. He had little buzzy wings and a little buggy face, he warned, darting his eyes from left to right. Charlotte rolled her eyes at Quintilian, dismissing his antics, and then set her sights on understanding where they were. A typical wooded forest with a cluster of trails that fanned out into several different directions. What are we looking for? Quintilian asked. 
I am not sure. I'm, I'm trying to find some lost memories. Memories? Quintilian nickered, glancing up at her. About these memories, have you thought about trying the manor? Quintilian asked. The manor? Charlotte's eyes lit up. Hey, that's not a bad idea. Why didn't I think of that? He narrowed his eyes at her. Prodigy, maybe. But you're not a genius like me. But wouldn't I have checked there before in a previous memory relapse cycle? She muttered, looking around in thought. Also, it's weird when you do that with your eyes. Horses don't do that. Quintilian narrowed his eyes again, rebelliously repeating the action exactly as before. Probably, but you don't know until you check. His eyes caught a large patch of fleshy mushrooms. He trotted over to them and bit down. That is also pretty weird behavior for a horse, she said, looking at the mushrooms. Quintilian cocked his head to the side. Shows a talking horse, he said through a mouthful of mushrooms. Uh-huh. Well, finish up and we'll head down that way. <laughs> Quintilian chewed. After swallowing, he continued, Do you know what way that would be? Charlotte scratched her head. Now that you mention it, no. Do you? Um, Quintilian said derisively. Climb on and, well, avoid the mud, he snorted. Charlotte groaned and retrieved the handkerchief from her satchel and tried to remove some of the thick, crusted-over cakes of mud on Quintilian's back. Quintilian craned his head back to watch her. Really? He criticized. Charlotte clumsily threw herself over Quintilian's back and situated herself into a riding position. He took them off in an easterly direction. Once they cleared the fog-laden forest, they passed by a myriad of solved Gordix puzzles. They were each of them heralded by their own long-winding flagstone paths, branching out from each other and sometimes overlapping. Charlotte could recall them all in detail, though never the epiphanic bits of programming that were born out of them. There had to be thousands of them, she mused. Then the territory became less familiar to Charlotte, and the path with bits of flagstone gradually became worn and degraded. After passing by an old windmill with a collection of lances buried into it like a pincushion, the road began to pick up again. But in place of flagstones, there were smaller gray-weathered bricks organized at right angles, with traces of marigold-colored paint creeping out from the cracks. Not terribly original of me, Charlotte thought. Off in the distance, at the very edge of the road, Charlotte could make out a stain along the horizon, resembling an outsized estate of sorts. Its grandiosity made her think maybe it was a mirage born out of a cloud system on the darkening horizon, but she knew it was the manor. I think you found it, Charlotte shouted down to Contillion. You cannot find something that isn't lost, he teased. Along the way, there were unusual ornaments, sculptural wind chimes hanging from high up in the trees. Charlotte did not recall any of those wind chimes specifically, but they were somewhat familiar to her in a way. Once she had received one as a gift as a young child, she remembered. The trees themselves grew more winding and wild, with many low-hanging branches. Charlotte had to duck several times, cued by Quintilian's own evasive dodges and strafes. She chuckled at the irony of riding a horse whose wit for travel was sharper than her own. Is it usually the other way around? He snorted between breaths in response to her thought. 
Charlotte glared down at him. It was, of course, useful that Quintilian could understand her thoughts, but it still somehow felt like an invasion of privacy. Quintilian snorted again. The trees continued to wind around themselves, creating a mass of tangles, some rather tall. It would have been particularly treacherous for most horses to clear, but Quintilian made short work of them. He was a large horse after all, easily sixteen hands, and yet somehow still nimble. Not long after that, they were at the doorstep of the manor. A veritable mansion that had been so neglected that the neighboring forest had all but reclaimed it. There was an enormous tree that had taken up residence in the courtyard, and over the years had expanded to the different rooms and chambers. Even before the invasion of the tree and other flora, the manor itself had been an amalgam of several different types of architecture, haphazardly retrofitted on top of each other. What once would have been only marginally stable had fallen into complete disrepair. I think only the tree is holding that thing together. What do you think happened? Quintilian said. Neglect, she answered. Do you think you'd have been using it when you knew this Aleph? Quintilian said. I think so, but there's no way to be sure unless I check, Charlotte replied. I think I'll take my chances out here, Quintilian said, before saddling up to an old trough that had collected rainwater and began drinking. With the double doors hanging off their hinges, Charlotte stepped into the manor carefully. The interior was in no better condition than the outside. Roots sprawled over and throughout rotten floorboards. Vines and mosses had woven themselves into the fabric of the walls, tapestries, and drapes. Charlotte had to be cautious as she made her way, so as not to fall through rotted floorboards and run the risk of collapsing entire rooms. She clung to areas near the walls, where the floors were more likely to be better braced and less damaged. As she made her way through the manor, she found that she was gradually recovering her familiarity with it. When she came upon doors, she would recall what they were for, and what they contained. A blue door down the main corridor was for storing information about history. She cautiously hopped around some fallen support beams, and under a sprawling tree limb, she opened the door and found a library of several like-bounded volumes arranged in chronological order. The events of the earliest recorded history, from Hammurabi to the Epic of Gilgamesh, and other texts she'd read from Old Sumer and Assyria. In the center of the room was a large globe, physically identical to the Earth in every way but its size. Charlotte felt like an alien conqueror looking down on it from space. It hung suspended perfectly in the air, void of any movement. That is, until she stepped onto one of the four spokes of the wheel. The outer ring of the room was moving in a clockwise fashion around her. But the shelves and the books, the globe and the platform it was on, were still. I guess it's a matter of perspective, she thought, realizing that the globe platform was moving ever so slightly the opposite direction. Charlotte remembered this globe room now in more detail. It once served as a mental repository for world history and was one of the first things that she had fabricated here. All information she had learned, no matter how large or small, could be located geographically through this device. Curious it was to see this now so concretely, to be rendered this way in loci space. She knew now the manor was the seed, the precursor to the loci state practice. As a child, she used this place to store information, but she had never accessed these memories directly in the loci state before now. Having not even fathomed the possibility of loci state originally then, she had to enter the manor in the form of standard visualization meditation. 
The visualizations were just rough sketches in her mind, which explained the unusual combinations of architecture. As she added types of information and uses for the manor, she subconsciously had to create annexes, and sometimes entirely new wings for that information to live. And those architectures were essentially arbitrary based off of a piece of something she had seen in a book, or a building that she encountered in her daily life. Then, eventually, after many years of using the manor, her mnemonic abilities evolved into something much more concrete and visceral. It became an abstraction of pure thought, in the form of analogous sensory experiences. And it was not long after that when she discovered that the loci state had uses far beyond mnemonic recollection. It could be used as a heuristic for algorithms, ultimately to be useful in her waking life and in the form of loci script. Charlotte reached out and touched a point on the North American continent of the globe, somewhere on the lower crest of the old slow mountain range. A funnel of light shot out from that point, projecting a circular pane that hovered over the globe, magnifying it. After several sequences of magnification, Charlotte found herself standing over a cluster of cities, one of which contained Gorge Sylvania. A silver beam of light was pushing out of the globe from Gorge Sylvania and shed a broader beam of light over a section of books in another part of the globe room. She found herself pawing through a limited selection of texts, pulling one at random, a book she knew as The Earliest History of Gorge Sylvania and Its Naming. She opened it in a collection of intricately cut pop-up structures, and characters broke free from their bounds and proceeded to act out a scene including some colonial settlers and Native Americans perched over some sort of ledger. She closed the book. Charlotte ran her finger along some of the other texts, wondering if her personal experiences were also cataloged within this room, but it seemed unlikely. The Globe Room was a reservoir for official written histories. Memories of her personal experiences would be held elsewhere within the manor, if at all. If so, then there was a chance that the lapses in her memory, specifically everything connected to Aleph, might be accessible. As she exited the room, she smiled at her old work of art. No wonder I passed World History AP when everyone else at my age was still learning about igloos and rock hammers. She wondered why they didn't teach this method as part of the curriculum. Was it really so outlandish? She found herself in the same corridor. She passed by many other doors. A green one, she knew, was for life sciences. Yellow, for literature. And a black one, the most recently added, wing, for memorizing advanced mathematical formulas. Also the location where she experimented with loci script. None of these rooms had anything to do with her personal histories, though. All the main rooms store general knowledge, and those tend to be commonplaces, she thought. But memories were personal. Personal things belonged in private places. Bedrooms. She returned to the main atrium and followed along a precarious twisting staircase to the upper level. There were framed pictures lining the wall. Each one was at least as tall as herself. One in particular depicted a family portrait. The mother was short in stature, with a small build, almond-shaped green eyes, auburn hair, and a dimpled smile. This was her mother. Standing next to her was a man with dark skin and short black curly hair. His smile was somewhat clenched and more reserved. This was her father. There was Charlotte, short and skinny with shoulder-length braids, and her unmissable white hair. She could have been no older than seven or eight. She was not smiling on account of her woefully crooked teeth, which 
marked it in time right before she received her braces. Then there was a young boy standing with them, of about eleven years, with black wavy hair. His look favored her mother's, a pleasant smile with an easiness to his eyes. He was wearing baseball gear and holding a baseball bat, casually in one hand. She walked in closer and examined the boy's face with more precision. She touched the canvas. She could even feel the brush strokes that defined her brother's familiar hair. She turned her gaze to another picture mounted nearby. The image was of her brother, but he was a year or two younger than in the family portrait. He was still wearing the baseball uniform with a catcher's mitten mask. Why do I always remember him this way? She grumbled. He was more complex than that. While it was clear that he loved baseball, his life was not only baseball. And yet every Christmas and birthday, he'd end up with a pile of gifts that all had one thing in common. Damn baseball. He also liked playing games in the house. On some uneventful summer evenings, he would make up games for them to play. They usually involved a lot of rules. It almost always involved some sort of ball, little quarter machine bouncing balls, or an indoor foam ball, sometimes a hacky sack. He was never mean to her, and he never neglected her. His favorite food was spaghetti and meatballs, but specifically without tomato sauce. A placard below the portrait read, T. It was the nickname he gave himself because he could not stand his full name. He was T or even T-ball to his friends, of which he had many. She looked at the portrait a bit longer, and imagined hugging him again. There were other framed paintings in this hall. Some of the more difficult images were stored behind a long, black curtain. She needed to focus on the actual timeline of her history, so she left those paintings alone. They were usually better left alone anyways. This hall served to illustrate defining moments of her life, Moments that had a strong impression on her. There were no paintings of Aleph in this hallway. In order to look further into her past, in greater detail, she had to find where her histories were stored based on their chronology. It occurred to her then that she never intended on storing experiential memories like this. The previous rooms in the downstairs area were familiar to her. She had intentionally constructed those rooms with their purpose in mind. But this hallway must have been an accidental creation, a sort of abridgment to the manor that sprouted up spontaneously, a sort of mnemonic byproduct. She found a small door at the end of the hallway and passed through it. Inside was something she had only ever seen in images. It was a library's antiquated card catalog system, meant for quick perusing. Charlotte studied the labels of the card catalogs. They were sorted by day. This almost seemed easier, Charlotte thought. Empirical knowledge tends to be sorted by a variety of criteria, but in the case of personal experiential memories, a person can only be at one place during one point in time. The chronology is precise, and it is the most honest way someone's life can be documented. Charlotte opened one of the drawers at random. She was expecting to find a drawer filled with several decks worth of cards broken down by hour. Instead, she found a single golden disc laying face-up in the drawer, and it embossed letters that read, Day 3066 lining the rim. Farther in, radiating out from the center, were little tapered wedge-shaped holes. There were 48 total, she knew. She looked through one of the holes. Nothing happened. I must be missing something, she muttered out to herself. She looked around the room. Unlike the rest of the estate, 
There were no cobwebs or anything denoting age in this chamber. The room itself appeared to be preserved, regularly maintained even. Nestled in a nook in the center of the card catalog wall was a white pedestal. On top of the white pedestal was an unusual device that looked like a cross between a 33mm camera and a pair of binoculars. She removed it from the pedestal and examined it. Ah, it's a stereoscope, she said excitedly. In place of a lever, there was a notched dial. She slipped the gold disc marked Day 3066 into a slot on top of the device and looked into the eyepieces. Then she found herself face to face with a woman who she knew to be her mother. She was distressed and agitated, and her hair was very messy. Her day-old makeup was smudged. She had been crying, but appeared to be angry about something. She looked at Charlotte directly in the eyes and said, I don't love you. I don't love you anymore. Charlotte found herself confused and grief-stricken. It was so out of character for her mother. She was throwing Charlotte's things around the room. A doll that her grandmother made for her. Pillows and other toys that belonged to Charlotte. Then her behavior suddenly shifted and she concentrated on the corner of the room. She was peeling wallpaper off the wall with care. It was Charlotte's wallpaper, little painted pictures of different horse breeds. She liked the speckled ones. Her mother and her had picked it out only a couple years before. Why was she tearing it away now? Then she saw her mother chuckling to herself. It was so uncharacteristic that Charlotte thought it was deliberately meant to mock her. But the laugh was entirely authentic. Something was making her laugh. And it was something Charlotte could not see or understand. Mommy, she shouted in confused terror. She was close to her now and could smell her. Her scent was a mixture of the remnants of shampooed hair and then something else. Something sour and sickly. Why does she smell like that, Charlotte wondered. She had grabbed her mother's wrist but could not pull her away from the wall. She wanted to hug her and make her normal again. Her mother looked her in the eye. She was herself then, Charlotte knew. Mommy, stop! Charlotte heard herself say. She then saw herself being pulled away from her mother, but she wanted to stay with her and make her understand. It was working. Her mother was returning back to normal. She had stopped peeling away the wallpaper, but someone else had picked her up. It was her father, she saw. But everything was blurry now. Her eyes were filled with tears. When her father put her down again outside of the room, she tried to plead with him. Let me talk to her. She was listening to me, she heard herself say. I can help, she shouted again angrily. Her father would not listen. He looked at her closely then, for only an instant, but with eyes pregnant with severity and withheld consternation. Stay here, Charlotte. Please. There was a tinge of desperation in his voice she'd never heard before. Her father was always a pillar of emotional strength, but with just that single word, it was as if she knew then that her childhood was a fleeting thing. These were bigger problems than she could understand. Then her father turned back towards her mother, who was crying hysterically, an awful wailing sound. It was the sound of someone looking into a vast empty well of things that should make sense, but could not make sense. At that moment, a sort of reconsolidation happened 
and Charlotte felt loci self, the one in the manor who had found the memory, imbuing her remembered self with reawakened information. She had remembered all this, uncorrupted and true, but she kept it deep down, hidden away from herself where it could not hurt her. Her mother's tear-stained face froze in her mind. That was a very hard time, she thought. The early stages of her disease had not been easy for her as a young child. The trauma took some time for her to process. Charlotte was holding the stereoscope. She was no longer crying. She had not been crying. It was day 3066 Charlotte that was crying. But the pangs of those feelings were still sharp in her mind. She exhaled deeply. What a day to choose, she thought. And how easy it would be to get caught up in these memories. She had never feared getting lost in Loki State before. It was always easy to leave. Problem solving and code breaking always had a goal. Something to solve for. Once the solution was achieved, the Loki State would dissipate and she'd find herself in the chair in her studio apartment. If she had ever been hurt or damaged in Loki, she would also awake in the chair unharmed. But reliving old memories through the lens of her past self was inherently different. By taking on the mantle of her past self, she could understand how it would be easy to forget herself. When she used the stereoscope, she not only re-experienced the memories, but in part also became past Charlotte. Once, hopes, anxieties, fears, thoughts, and ideas all became her own. I have to remember to know myself, she thought. What was that ancient aphorism? Oh yes, noti seoton, know thyself. She put that day's disc back in its drawer. She had to find out what happened to the days when she would have known the boy, Aleph. I wonder if the inventory will work, she thought to herself. She reached for her satchel that was hanging from her left side. She called on the photograph of her standing with Aleph's family and retrieved it from the bag. It was as she remembered. There was the boy, Sir Aleph, and young Charlotte was standing next to him with the Dalmatian in the crook of her arm. She had to gauge how old she was in the picture. She had shoulder-length hair that had been braided for the costume. Based on her relative height, presence of braces, she deduced that she was no older than 11. They were all in costume, so it came to reason that it was Halloween. She quickly did the math and determined that it would be exactly day 3,986. Charlotte found the drawer labeled for that day, retrieved the disc, and dropped it into the slot of the stereoscope. She pulled the dial to the notch sometime in the late afternoon and looked through the eyepieces of the stereoscope. Charlotte, are you ready to go? said a voice from behind her. She was looking in the mirror. Loki Charlotte had guessed right on the day. She was wearing Dorothy's blue gingham dress almost identical to the photograph. Her arms were crossed and she lacked the zombie makeup. I guess, Charlotte moped. What's wrong? her father asked. Linda won't let me be undead, Dorothy. I have to be regular dumb old Dorothy if I want to go trick-or-treating with the others, Charlotte said. Yeah, well, she just doesn't want you to send the wrong message. It's Halloween! Dias de los muertos! You remember what that means, right? What's the point in dressing up as living people at all? He chuckled. Your grandmother'd be proud. But you want the candy, right? I guess, she sighed. Can't you talk to her? I tried, but you know her. When she's got her mind made up, there isn't really any way around it. 
I need you to be the sensible one here, okay? He said. All right, she said. But I am not wearing a coat. It'll ruin my costume, she said, slipping a couple packages of fake blood into her pocket. He smiled at her and walked out of the room behind her. Moments later, Charlotte followed behind her stepbrother and stepsister. Her stepsister, Raven, was wearing an ice queen gown, get up, and looked like some kind of juvenile pageant queen. Charlotte predicted Raven would be one of several dozen ice princesses they'd see wandering around that night. Her stepbrother, Trip, who was two years older, was barely wearing any costume at all. In fact, the only thing he had on was a gorilla mask, fixed in a grotesque, roaring expression. Gorillas are not Halloween. And he was not even wearing it with anything related anyhow, she thought. He just had it on with his regular clothes. To be fair, it was a nice mask. It should be. Charlotte was there when her stepmother bought it for him at the costume shop. It was $200. They filed into a suburban SUV that belonged to the parents of Tripp's friend, Liam. Liam's costume was also uninspired. He was wearing his football helmet from his team uniform, but without the jersey or the pads. Charlotte experienced intense feelings of anger towards the lot of them, which might have been worth something had they not ignored her completely. Her stepmother waved them off after thanking Liam's mother briefly at the car window. Charlotte's stepmother was not wearing a costume. She and her father were to attend an adults-only Halloween party. It would have been difficult to tell, though, because she was only wearing a slim-fitting sequin black dress with a split up the sides revealing her legs. That's not really a costume, she thought. The SUV pulled into the Coleman Burroughs neighborhood. This subdivision was known for having the most spectacular and elaborate Halloween decorations in the area. It was always a must-see, but this was the first time she had to go without her parents. The experience was different. After getting out of the SUV, Charlotte retrieved the blood packets from her pockets. While they were walking, Charlotte made sure she was in the back of the group. When no one was looking, she opened up one of the packets and spurted fake blood over herself. She was hoping to capture at least some of the zombie look with the blood. A few minutes later, Liam's mother shrieked at her. Charlotte was stunned. What happened? Oh my god, are you okay? Did you cut yourself? She gasped, rushing over to her. What? It's fake, Charlotte said, holding up the open blood packet. Liam's mother was holding her forehead. Oh, thank god. Why would you do something like that? You'd frighten half the neighborhood. Um, yeah, it's Halloween, isn't that the point? Charlotte said. She frowned at her. I have to call your mother, she said, pawing through her purse for her phone. Why? That kid over there has a fake hatchet sticking out of his head, she gestured. The other kids were looking at Charlotte disdainfully. Charlotte tried to convince herself that she did not care what anyone else thought, but the truth was that she was embarrassed. Present-day loci Charlotte was trying to understand what she was watching. Now that the memory was fresh in her mind, she did recall this happening. It was strange seeing something so clearly now in front of her, being reminded of old feelings, and not just the feelings themselves, but the context around those feelings, the thoughts about the thoughts. Learning about her past self this intimately was like meeting an old familiar friend. Loka Charlotte reached up to the dial on the stereoscope and ticked it forward, gradually pushing the day forward at a faster rate. The night's full experiences flashed over her. She watched herself following behind her stepbrother and her stepsister, without even the will to actually stand there and ask for candy. Liam's mother seemed to forget about her as quickly as she reacted to the fake blood. Past Charlotte's mood was broken, 
and she was not even enjoying the neighborhood's elaborate decorations. This was unusual for her. Charlotte was not typically an expressive child. She had her moods, but they tended to be manageable. Another child under these same circumstances might have deliberately broken away from the group in some kind of desperate plea for attention. But Charlotte simply followed through with the outing until it was over. Charlotte was meant to stay the night at Liam's house, along with Tripp, for a sleepover. While Raven stayed with her friend Beth, Charlotte fell asleep in Liam's parents' guest room. But not before his mother made her change out of the fake bloodstained gingham dress and into her pajamas. That was Halloween for Charlotte that year. And she did not recall ever trying to wear that costume ever again. She pulled the stereoscope away from her face, trying to understand what happened. A real photograph existed of her in the full zombified Dorothy costume that she, according to her own memories, never wore. She held up the photograph and examined it once again to confirm. Yes, the Charlotte in this version was wearing a tattered, dirty blue gingham dress and that most obvious neck wound prosthetic. There were only a couple reasons that this could happen, but the most likely was that this version of Charlotte's memories was a fiction. Instead of a blind spot for Aleph, she had a replacement. Memories have strong plasticity, she knew, and they contain the potential to be edited every time that they are accessed, and even take on new meanings. Was that the case here, she wondered? That's when she remembered she had looked in the mirror at the beginning of the memory. Was she wearing a wig? Or was her hair brunette? She believed her hair was brunette, but that could not be possible. She quickly looked through the stereoscope once more and tuned the dial to the exact time she was looking in the mirror. Indeed, the memory lied. Charlotte in the photograph never even bothered with a wig. She wore her blazing white hair proudly braided. Charlotte's memories were no different than anyone else's. These fictional memories were the best her mind could do after omitting Aleph. She would have then wondered where to look, but she knew. She flipped the photograph over again. Return here in Logi, it said. She had returned to the memory. Now she must return to Fort Hamilton Park, where the photograph was first found. Wow. Another emotionally charged chapter this one was. But I'm glad we got to spend a little bit more time with Quintilian. He's so sassy. I like him. We all need a little Quintilian in our lives. In fact, I don't know about you, but I could sure use a memory manner. Reminds me of an old Sherlock episode. You know, the Cumberbatch one where the guy uses the Mosai method or memory palace. Oh shit. Do you think that's where the name comes from? Losai? I believe it's pronounced Losai. Uh-oh. D, have I been pronouncing Lokai wrong all along? Eh. Lokai sounds cooler. More chaotic. It's elementary, my dear Bilbo. My Wilt. What I'm listening to. This story reminds me a lot of a book series by Garth Nix, The Old Kingdom. The first book in the series, Sabriel, features a young necromancer. But instead of raising the dead, she puts him to sleep. There's even a sassy magic white cat creature. And what's better, the unabridged version is read by my personal hero, Tim Curry. Let's do the time warp again. This is the end of episode 4. It has been a pleasure reading to you again. I was Joey Ammons. You can find me on Instagram at powerkid.exe. 
where I've been documenting my sadness at missing ECCC this year due to the evil COVID-19 epidemic. I've also been more active on my Twitter handle lately, at Joey Ammons, spelled the same as my name. (gasps) Coincidence? See you next time, folks. This was not conducive to Engai. He was nearly completed. Hold her eyes at Quintilian, disminting, disminting, disminting. A delicious mint. Were you dis? A typical wooden forest. Wooden. Wooden. A wooden forest. What is a wooden forest? But she was a little more than. But he narrowed her eyes. Her her eyes at her. Quintilian crocked, crocked, cockety crocketed knocked. They were each heralded by their own long winding flags. But in place of flagstones, there were smaller grit, smaller they snards. I think you found it, Charlotte shouted down to Quintilian. Quintilian, Quintilian. The manor itself had been an anemonems, as an anemonems. What once would have been only marginally be mer- oh, <laughs> found that she could chicka 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 and not the rest of the rest of the rest and it was not long after that when she discovered that Loki's state had uses far bought far bond to be used she returned to the main atrium and followed along a precarious precarious they're in radiating out from oh my god Farther in, the flubby. When she used the scary Dias de los Muertos, de los de los Muertos, Dias de los Muertos, Dias de los Muertos. This subdivision was known for having the most most spack attacks. Present day loci, Charlotte was trying to understand. She held up the photograph and examined it again to the dividends.